Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Me, I love the sound and feel of a good muckabout. But I get it. Others might not feel the same way. A smelly swamp is best avoided. Fine then. We will leave it to the critters and the scientists to embrace the joy of a marshy, boggy morass. I love tromping around in wetlands. It feels a little bit like walking in a waterbed. That is Christina Davies. She's a research scientist for the Ontario Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry. And she knows you may not quite get her passion for wetlands. Because they do look like big mud puddles when you don't understand how important they are. I think we don't always give them the value that they really deserve. And I think that people understanding why they're important is a a big step to conserving them and slowing the rate of loss. Davy runs a conservation ecology lab at Trent University in Peterborough, Ontario. She's watched as the number and size of wetlands shrink. The heavily settled landscape in southwestern Ontario has been heavily modified by human use in the last hundred years. So areas that used to be wetland have been converted either for urban use, for cities and towns that people need to live in, and also into agricultural fields to provide the food that we need to feed people in the province. And so where there used to be extensive wetlands stretching across the landscape that these critters could live in, it's estimated that 69% of southern Ontario's original wetlands were lost by 1982, with an additional 3.5% loss between 1982 and 2002, and further losses since then. So that means that about three quarters of the area's wetlands are now gone. And look across the country, Davy says you'll see wetland loss throughout southern Canada. Though the scale may vary, there are two common factors. And so where wetlands have been removed, they're primarily replaced by urban areas or by agricultural fields. Right. So we're talking farmlands, we're talking cities, we're talking roads. That's right. All the things that, that humans in contemporary Canada need. But remember what she said earlier? I think that people understanding why they're important is a a big step to conserving them and slowing the rate of loss. So they might not look like much, but what Davey wants you to understand is that wetlands are a climate powerhouse. It looks like a mucky puddle. Even that sheen of tiny little animals is actually pulling chemical pollutants out of the water and helping to keep it clean. But also the wetlands serve to slow down the flow of water, which means that there's water available in the wetland area to the plants and animals that need it, but also that it doesn't arrive too quickly at those downstream locations, causing huge floods. They sound like little miracles, (laughs) climate change miracles. They really are. (laughs) They really are. Climate change and biodiversity miracles. I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to a rebroadcast of What on Earth? Pat Chow Fraser has been studying the wetlands around the coasts of Ontario's Great Lakes for about two decades. And it's fair to say she too is smitten. I dare anyone to go into some of these wetlands in their wildest state and not be completely impressed. It's actually a sanctuary. 
Chow Fraser is a biology professor at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. She sees how climate change is disrupting data that used to be reliable. One of the main things that are affected uh, by climate change is the change in the pattern of water level fluctuations. It's normal for these wetlands at the edges of Ontario's Great Lakes to go through patterns of high and low. But what happened um, in the last two decades is that we've had over 14 years of sustained low below the long-term mean. And the last time this happened, we only had eight years of continuous low water in the 30s and 40s. Then just as abruptly, it went up uh, almost immediately within two years, and it was the fastest rate of rebound that, that had ever been recorded. And when those patterns changed, so did the vegetation. There are lots of plants that uh, people refer to as weed sometimes and that clog up the boats, but those are the, the really great habitats for fish. And if that water goes down and stays down for a very long time, then that's going to have an impact on the amount of fish habitat that exists. The trees actually started to establish within the meadow zone. So we started seeing uh, pine trees and alders starting to grow in the meadow itself, which never, uh, this has never happened before. And all that, of course, has an impact on the creatures there. But what exactly the future holds? Well, that's unfortunately a big question mark because this is so unprecedented and it's so unpredictable. Chow Fraser says protecting the remaining wetlands in the Great Lakes is key. Because of those fluctuating water levels, she wants them to have space, a buffer to expand and retreat. Well, the buffer means that we have to make sure that we, we do not build in anything that's below the high water mark. Um, and we also need to know where the low, how low it can be. And unfortunately, we don't know. And the best thing to do is to let nature have some more space to adapt to these changing environments. My name is Mervyn Child. I am third generation Canadian from Bristol, England on my father's side. And I am a member of the First Nations community of the Kwagyul on my mother's side. Mervyn Child's Indigenous ancestors relied on wetlands for food, medicine, and culture. Now Kwagyul First Nation members are working to restore and protect them from the effects of climate change. In March, they won a B.C. government grant to help reverse the effects of logging and erosion that have damaged the area's rich saltwater marsh. That project is still in the planning stages, but I asked him to describe the wetland and what it has provided to past generations. Everything. There's so much waterfowl, of course, in there. There's lots of migratory birds, and uh, there's dog salmon, chums, pinks, and coho in there, steelhead in there, and a variety of trout. So the annual harvest cycle there would have been profound, making it an incredibly rich environment and well protected there would have been lots of protocol around protecting it and owning it and and of course protecting your resources your food resources because well they're yours 
But now all of that has changed. He says rising sea levels and the growing intensity of storm surges there threaten the balance of fresh water and salt water. Logging has also taken its toll, and Child has borne witness to it. In past years, he was a youth leader, and he liked to take his kids to a favorite swimming hole. Well, those water holes and those swimming holes where those children gathered and I got to know, well, they're gone. The river is, doesn't even flow in that stream anymore. The river gets so full of debris from washout logging activity and slides up river that this debris comes down, piles up, dams itself, and it finds a new way through the forest floor. So that that's a major, major issue when we're talking about salmon habitat and how can they possibly survive in a system that is continually being disturbed. You know, it, it's just... It, All you have to do is look at it, right? The wetlands have provided much more than recreation and food. They've also acted as one big medicine cabinet. In fact, Child says elders in the community have identified at least 75 medicinal plants in the local marsh areas. I would venture to say wetlands the world over have produced so many valuable medicinal plants and plants that remain staple. There is a cinefoil root there, for instance, and that's where... Tlaxiwe gets its name from Tlaxum, which is a, a root plant. Child knows so much about the past, so I also asked him for his thoughts on what happens if they lose those rich wetland areas. You know, what if? What if that ecology, like no other ecology in the planet, you know, what What if? It's, it's rich. It's beyond words. It's beyond description. It... Uh, All of these things have so much value. They stand alone. There's no other place on the planet that is shaped by the tide and the wind and the glaciation the way that that spot is. And just to update you with a bit of good news, the project is now complete and it's successfully redirecting water and restoring the wetland. Okay, let's head across Canada once again, this time to the Atlantic region. As you've heard, one of the many climate benefits of wetlands is their ability to store carbon. My next guest has been studying the salt marshes around the Bay of Fundy. Gail Shimura is a professor in the Department of Geography at McGill University. Hello. Hi. Let's start by painting a picture here. Simply put, what is a salt marsh? In Canada, we can simply describe salt marshes as grassy meadows that are flooded by the ocean tides twice a day. And, and to, to give me a sense of what they look like. They look like a meadow. <laughs> One time I had a student very disappointed. She goes, it just looks like a grass, like an overgrown lawn. <laughs> um, it's lots of gra- green grass and there are some, a few flowering, you know, forbs, uh, wildflowers that grow in them, but generally they're dominated by these grassy plants, and that's what makes them such a good carbon sink because they have tremendous root systems that store the carbon dioxide that the plants take out of the air. Thank so yeah, they're not they're not that outrageous looking. They're just excellent carbon sinks and also excellent habitat. So tell me more about that without getting too scientific on me. Um, how does how does the salt marsh absorb carbon from the atmosphere and then store it? You talked about the long root system. 
Yeah, well, like all plants, all green plants, they undergo photosynthesis. And during that, they take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And it gets stored in both the green part of the plant, but also three to five times more gets stored in the organic matter in the roots, in the soil. And those roots stay there in this kind of ecosystem. They don't decompose very much because the soil is so wet. And they just keep accumulating more and more soil as sea level rises. And it's simply plant material that gets preserved. Now, you've been focusing on the Bay of Fundy between New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. Why is that area kind of like a sunken treasure chest for carbon? Well, they actually, I think, all of eastern Canada's coastline is pretty much a sunken treasure chest. But I, thanks to Environment and Climate Change Canada, I was supported to look really in depth, to make a bad pun, at the salt marshes on the Bay of Fundy. And because of the huge tides, the tidal flooding brings in a lot of mud from those mudflats in the bay, and that traps that organic matter, keeps it from washing away, and helps to keep it preserved. And so these marshes build as sea level rise, and they've been building for over 3,000 years. So we have 3,000 years of carbon stored in these marshes. So just so you know, bad puns are accepted on what on earth. (laughs) And I wondered, how do you collect and measure the carbon from the marshes? Very carefully. Um, (laughs) The hardest part is just getting it out of the mud and not compacting it and squishing it too much because we have to know what volume we have. And once we've done that, and there are all kinds of gadgets, sometimes our bare hands, uh, and then we just bring it back to the lab. You simply dry it, grind it up. We have gone through probably a 100 coffee bean grinders because we simply use that. And then we can put it in a furnace and ignite it and determine how much weight is lost after the ignition, which simply represents the organic matter that was in there. All right. So then let's let's find out the answer to the question. question. How much carbon can the salt marshes in the Bay of Fundy suck out of the atmosphere? The rates are still difficult to determine. We have rates for some marshes, but determining rates because of all the mud is a little difficult. But we do know that over their history, the Bay of Fundy marshes have stored 52 million tons of carbon dioxide. Can you give me a sense of how that translates for those of us who, who just see that and see a number? Okay, 52 million tons we calculated. That could be equal to the emissions of vehicles that drove 225 billion kilometers. And that that's with something like 216, the year 216 estimates from the US EPA. Okay, that sounds pretty significant. How does it stack up against other uh, so-called natural carbon sinks? Yep. Or natural climate solutions, we're also calling them. Well, most wetlands will store carbon, things with flooded soils, but marine wetlands, the salt marshes, unlike freshwater wetlands like Hudson Bay lowlands, um, which emit methane, which is a much more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide, salt marshes can even act as a methane sink. The microbes in the soil will actually take some methane out of the atmosphere and transform it into something that's safe. The big problem 
the big question for Fundy in particular is, can we restore all the marshes that were drained? Because we actually have, we lost 77% of the Bay of Fundy marshes through diking and draining. Right. But we have a fantastic opportunity to reflood these systems, and we know that we would get a lot of carbon stored. So you because can't... they would simply start to function just as a salt marsh. So I, I want to continue on that with, in just a second, but I just want to bring bring you back again to this, this comparison with other um, n- uh, natural carbon sinks. Um, does that then, what you're suggesting, does that make wetlands sort of the um, the uh, top star in, in the global <laughs> carbon sink race? Is it is it the winner? I think so. Um, marine wetlands, salt marshes, and man- their tropical cousins, mangroves. In terms of rates of carbon accumulation per year and their ability to keep it in the soil. So we have, there, there is a um, mangrove system in Belize, for instance, it's been accumulating carbon dioxide for 9,000 years. Um, 9,000 years ago, we had ice all over Canada, so we don't have systems quite as old. But we're up there. <laughs> so, I think 3,000 years is darn good <laughs> for accumulating carbon. Now, we touched on this. Some some of these wetlands are lost to development, and the other impact is sea level rise from climate change. So tell me how affected are the wetlands of, of the Bay of Fundy by these kinds of challenges? Well, we found that systems where the tidal range is high, like in the Bay of Fundy, it ranges from 6 to 11 meters up and down every day. Uh, These systems are more resilient to sea level rise. They are likely to survive increasing rates of sea level rise. Also, eastern Canada is extremely rural as compared to western Canada and the New England states, which means there's considerable open land above many of these salt marshes. And as sea level rises, it will start to flood inland. And we know by doing paleoecological studies that the salt marshes actually migrate inland over forest or grassland or whatever. So we actually have the opportunity for the active carbon sink to continue and maybe even expand in some cases with rising sea level because it has been expanding with rising sea level. You've, and you've studied marsh restoration in places like Olak, New Brunswick. How easy is it to restore a salt marsh? And the Bay of Fundy restoration is actually fairly simple because we just have to break dikes open because we have dikes that keep out the seawater and it'll keep the marsh drained. And if we open up those dikes, tidal water starts to come in and very quickly deposits all that Bay of Fundy mud. Uh, When we took measurements in a site at Olac, which had only been under restoration for six years, we were storing 1,329 grams of carbon per square square meter per year. Well, actually not we, this marsh was. And it was amazing. It was way above anything we expected. So they immediately serve as tremendous carbon sinks, as good a carbon sink as the natural or undisturbed marshes in the same region. 
Thank you very much for for telling us about uh, Canada's world-beating salt marshes. Yep, they certainly are. Thank you. So no matter what you call them, marshes, bogs, swamps, they do play a valuable role in the climate. In Okotoks, Alberta, the town is taking that literally, actually putting a price on all the work their wetlands are doing. Sherry Young is the climate change and energy specialist with the town of Okotoks. Hi, Sherry. Hi, Laura. A natural asset inventory. It actually sounds really technical. What is it? Uh, Well, it is kind of technical, but what it is generally is the way asset management is normally done in a municipality is they look at all the things that we build that provide services to residents. For example, roads and water treatment plants and all of that. And they put it in a database and they say, this is how we provide service to residents. But we decided to count up all of the natural assets, so all of the natural systems that provide services to the town of Okotoks, air quality and carbon sequestration and stuff like that. And we counted those up and put a value on them so that we could tell people how much those are worth to us as a town. So how different are they then from the built assets? Well, they're quite different. Um, The problem with the built asset or the benefit of a built asset, actually, is that they are purpose built for one service. So if you build a water line that takes water to all your residents' homes, it is built for that. It doesn't do anything else. So it's easy to measure how much service that provides and how much you need. The way natural assets work is that every natural asset, for example, a river, provides multiple services. So the river provides water. That's where we our wells are for the town of Okotoks or in the Sheep River. Um, but it doesn't go directly to people's houses. But it also provides habitat. It provides services like urban heat island effect countering. So it keeps things cool as, as temperatures go up. It sequesters carbon within the riparian areas and all of the trees that surround it and the plants there. And it has historical value as the town of Okotoks is uh, long known for its traditional lands uh, for the Blackfoot people. Why did you want to assess the value of these things like woods, lakes and wetlands? What's the end goal here? Well, in development processes, those places, those areas are known as green fields. And the way the development planners look at them is that they're kind of useless, right? They're not currently providing a use. And I wanted to change that. And so did the town of Okotoks. So Okotoks is long known for its sustainability stuff, especially because we have a limited amount of water in southern Alberta. So we wanted to know not just how much the water was provided, but what the rest of the assets were providing to the town of Okotoks. To what end? Was it to discourage development or or was it something else? Yeah, the intent is a couple of things. It's to, first of all, uh, make the public aware of how ecosystem services were being provided by areas that people thought were being useless. It was also to incorporate those lands into our development and planning purposes. Um, And then thirdly, it was also to use it as we were developing areas. For example, if we were going to put a bike trail through a certain area or we were going to develop in a certain area, we wanted to be able to look at that piece of land and prioritize it for cost and value as we integrated it into our plans for development. So interesting. I mean, you're seeing Okotoks change as much as the rest of the world is changing with a changing climate. Does that make this valuation even more important or or is it important because of climate change? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the 
global averages has gone up by one degree in Okotoks over the last hundred years has gone up by three degrees. So the reason this is really important is in the future, we'd like to be able to identify wetland areas and this will support our idea to restore those drained wetlands uh, in the future and incorporate wetlands into our residential areas that perhaps currently are being flooded or will be more prone to flooding with more storms in the future. We want to make sure those wetlands are incorporated into urban areas to counteract the urban heat island effect. I absolutely think that this is crucial to not only restoring wetlands for their own sake, but for increasing carbon sequestration to counteract our 404,000 tons of carbon that we emit into the air every year, as well as to adapt to increasing storm events and increasing heat events in Okotoks. Right. Okay, Sherry, here is the million-dollar question. What price did Okotoks put on its wetlands? So it's actually a $3.2 million question, Laura. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, that's not the land or the replacement cost. That's just for the services it provides, right? That's absolutely just for the services, uh, the bundled wetland services provided by those ecosystems. Yep. Okay, so you've put this price on the wetlands and, and other um, natural assets in Okotoks, but where do you hope this all will go in the future? Personally, I'm hoping that everybody sees the value in natural wetlands and we preserve everything we have. Realistically, I think that it will call people's attention. And when we put a price on it, it means they see that as a bottom line. So what we're doing is using the same language to talk to developers as they're using to talk to us. So they will see that the impact or the amount we're incorporating into their development to say, hey, those have an additional service. You need to incorporate the cost of those services or the production from those services into your development. Why does this matter so much to you? I live here. I uh, have children here. I have roots here. And the land that we live in and the world generally, we don't have anywhere else to go. You know, I know it's a cliche to say there's no planet B, but really, as much as we'd like to get on a plane, although that's impossible these days, and go somewhere better, there isn't anywhere better. Canada's a lovely place. Alberta's a wonderful place. It has lots of great natural assets. And we want to preserve those and put our roots deep into the soil in southern Alberta to preserve it. You make me want to visit Okotoks, you know. No, well, come on out, Laura. I'll take you on a tour. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sherry, thank you so much for your time. Not a problem, Laura. It was lovely to talk to you. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to an encore episode of What on Earth? I'm Laura Lynch. We do love hearing from you. So whether you're feeling the impact of climate change in your community or you're doing something to combat it, let us know. Earth at cbc.ca is our email address. And if you don't mind us giving you a call back, please include your phone number. The 
The idea seems simple. Charge people a small amount of money to pay for parking on residential streets and use the money to help deal with the climate crisis. When I'm talking to anybody on the street, I ask them, you think about this parking? It's like, no, man. They are crazy. They have lost their minds. For hours and hours, Vancouver City Council heard from people like him, passionate over what some called their right to park on the street. Others said the plan was unfair and flawed, even if the goal was laudable. What about people with kids, they said. This mom called in to fire back. I have two elementary age kids. For the past four years, I have biked, and we got rid of our car completely two years ago. I did this because I believe that climate change is the greatest challenge facing humanity and the globe. Finally, council members had their say. At the end of the day, the very real cost will be borne by our residents in an already unaffordable city. I am a grandmother, and I'm sorry if I'm emotional about this, but every day I think about their future. A nine-month-old grandson and a three-year-old grandson, they're going to be alive in 2100. Then they voted. The parking proposal failed six to five. Frances Bula watched it all unfold in real time. She's a freelance journalist who covers urban issues and politics, primarily for the Globe and Mail. Hello. Hi. Walk us through the climate emergency parking program. What was the goal? Well, the goal here was that this was going to be one of the key, 10 key game changer recommendations out of about 50 in the city's climate emergency action plan. And it had a couple of goals. One was to remind people that the pavement is not free. Number two, to put a pollution charge on high polluting vehicles, you know, giant SUVs and the like, of up to $1,000. So trying to discourage people from buying those kinds of vehicles and maybe instead getting a lower gas emissions uh, car or something electric. And number three was to raise money for the rest of the Climate Emergency Action Plan. And they were talking about up to $72 million in four years years. Now, as you mentioned, there was a range of prices for different people. Um, There was even a low income cost, wasn't there, for people who didn't have a lot of money? That's right. Yeah. After some consultation with the public who said, you know, even $45 could be a lot for, you know, a minimum wage service worker, it was decided that there'd be a $5 a year fee for people who qualified by income. And a lot of people came to speak to council about it, hours and hours worth of people. What stood out to you from what you heard? Uh, Aside from the fact that I was there from nine in the morning till six at night. (laughs) um, (laughs) I mean, people were very passionate on both sides. There's something about parking and car storage on streets that really gets people going in a particular way. And, you know, so obviously there were people who were just, this is my right to be able to park on the street in front of my house. I pay taxes. I pay a lot of taxes. I can't believe the city would even think about charging me for this. And then others on the other side, you know, with a range of environmental arguments, really kind of resenting the fact that people who store their cars on the street, you know, get to do that for free. And so it impacts choices. And a number of people who specifically talked about the impacts for children in many ways, um, creating a less climate friendly world for future generations, children being really anxious about climate change and seeing that adults are not willing to do anything about it. And even, you know, people saying when uh, there are fewer cars and uh, restrictions on how cars move around or can park, it makes 
cycling for my children who I cycle to school with so much easier um, because it's safer. So, but this was all about trying to do something about climate and climate change. And yet council voted six to five against it. Why do you think it ultimately failed? Well, number one, there's an election coming up within a year. And if this had gone into place, people would have started getting their notices in January, February or March of next year saying they had to pay their $45 or $5 or $500 or $1,000. And they probably would not have cooled off from that. And, you know, maybe positive results of it wouldn't have kicked in or people wouldn't have had a chance to get used to it. So that would be one. There is an argument that it just wasn't a good policy, that it would be better if the province uh, started charging cars differential prices based on how polluting they are, or how much people drove or something like that. Is there any possibility then that, that the council will try to reshape the policy and come back with something else? I wouldn't be surprised if this came back. You know, just the way early bike lanes were really controversial and hard to get in. And now they've no one hardly blinks an eye when yet another street, you know, gets a lane removed for a bike lane. The same thing happened with secondary suites. They were hugely controversial and banned at one point. Now no one even thinks twice about it. So this was just one program. How does it fit into what the city is doing more broadly on climate change? Well, broadly, Vancouver, as any city would, looks at two areas when they're trying to reduce carbon emissions. One is buildings and then transportation, um, trying to encourage other modes, um, reduce the use of fossil fuel emitting vehicles. Vancouver staffers um, said that 39% of Vancouver's carbon emissions come from vehicles and presumably the rest from buildings. Um, And that generated, I have to say, a lot of questions from people because they were saying, but isn't that also people who drive in here from the suburbs? There's no real controls over that. Pollution doesn't stop at the border of Vancouver uh, and so on. Um, But those are the two big areas, vehicles, buildings. Francis, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Laura. The question of parking may seem small in the grand scheme of trying to slash emissions, but according to my next guest, it's one of the few tools cities have in the fight against global warming. Sarah Birch is a Canada Research Chair and an Associate Professor in the Department of Geography and Environmental Management at the University of Waterloo. She studies community and urban transformations in response to climate change. Sarah, hello. Hello, thank you for having me. Now, you used to live in Vancouver. I'm wondering what your reaction was to to the failed climate emergency parking program. I did, yes. I spent nearly 10 years in Vancouver, uh, quite embedded in the sustainability and climate change communities. And I know very well that planners and engineers and and sustainability uh, experts of all stripes have been working really hard. So this came as quite a uh, quite a disappointment, you know, that that one of these important tools, you know, using pricing and using fees to try and guide folks towards more sustainable behaviors was was uh, failed to pass in the council. Well, maybe you can explain this a bit more. What, why do municipal fees like this matter as a step for addressing something as big as climate change? 
we, we talk about climate change as this dramatic, and it is, global phenomenon, and states get together and, and try to agree on shared goals and targets, like under the Paris Agreement. And, you know, we have obviously COP26 coming up in Glasgow soon. So we're hard at work at the international scale. But ultimately, whatever Canada agrees to internationally has to come home to roost. It, it, it hits the ground really in, in cities and communities in Canada and around the world. So that means that it's not just the purview or the responsibility of the federal government, but of, uh, you know, very much the responsibility of the provincial and territorial governments and of course municipalities as well. But, you know, cities are in the Canadian context sort of famously strapped for cash and they have relatively few mechanisms for uh, for growing their revenue streams property taxes being one of them of course but they need these resources to really do their best work on accelerating that project of, of decarbonization and so this this parking fee and and others that were proposed you know the, the tax on uh, gas-powered vehicles for instance are a couple of the tools that they do have at their disposal to help the city make progress and yet it was rejected so so what lessons do we take from that <laughs> I mean, I take the very basic lesson that people just don't like new fees. Um, you know, when I'm looking at the structure of the fee, it was fairly modest, but it was it was proposed to apply to the whole city rather than just a fraction of the city as it had before, and also overnight guests, uh, which is a new thing in Vancouver, but not new elsewhere. And there were some objections, I understand, to the fact that it might unfairly penalize lower income folks or, you know, those that that uh, resided in basement suites and wouldn't have access to to parking without paying this fee. But in fact, you know, it had been structured so that it was extremely modest for those of lower income, like $5 a year, very small, um, and shouldn't be, you know, what an economist would call regressive in that way. But there was significant pushback in, uh, from the public, and that is, it appears, what the, what the council responded to and reacted to. But as you said, there's not a lot of ways for cities to raise revenue. And let's just be reminded that this was supposed to be revenues that were going toward efforts to fight climate change. So how can cities raise revenue for the kind of shifts they need to make? You know, initiatives like this might take a couple tries to help people understand where those revenues are going to go. There's a chicken and an egg problem here. We need revenues, uh, you know, that could fuel, for lack of a better word, more electric vehicle charging stations so that we can make that transition away from fossil fuel based vehicles and support mass transit and, and active transit. So ensuring that there's that clear link and transparent link between the use of these funds and real steps that make people's lives better and help the city reduce its greenhouse gas emissions. But aside from the revenue generation, municipalities also, of course, have control over how their city is laid out through their planning and their zoning mechanisms. And it seems like a bit of an invisible hand guiding us along our, our emissions trajectory, but the distance that you and I have to travel from our home to our work and whether or not it's safe and convenient to travel that distance, that's really the purview of the municipality. And so planners have long, long since been advocates for compact, complete communities where we can live close to where we work and find food and recreation and be able to get outside and stay healthy. So that is a really important tool because it locks our cities into hardened infrastructure that stays around for decades and keeps us committed to either a low carbon or a really high carbon pathway. Are there other approaches to climate action that you've found to be most successful at, at the city or community level? Canadians have a lot to 
learn from and also a lot to contribute to in the space of what we're calling nature-based solutions or ecosystem-based approaches. And those are really well suited to the city scales, the community scale. So this is efforts we can make to protect, to preserve nature and ecosystems, but also to kind of actively manage, use nature to our benefit, for lack of a better phrase. Um, So sometimes that means preserving urban nature. Sometimes it means actively constructing new ecosystems and managing them like wetlands along coastlines. But also, you know, all those green and growing things, they sink carbon, so they help us along our our emissions trajectory as well. So nature-based solutions, you know, they're not new to cities, but actively engaging across planning and engineering and, and parks so that we really cultivate nature in our cities, I think will be a really important next step. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much. Now, there are cities in Canada with populations larger than some provinces and some territories, but they don't have as much power politically. Shauna Sylvester says it's time to reimagine the relationship between Ottawa and municipal governments. And she joins me now. Hello. Hello. As it stands right now, what kind of relationship does the federal government have with cities? I would say it is a distant relationship. Cities are seen as a creation of provinces, so the federal government doesn't necessarily have a direct relationship with cities, except through things like the Federation of Canadian Municipalities and some of the funding they might give to them. We want a very different kind of relationship, which is much closer and acknowledges the role that cities play in climate action and gives them the capacity to act since they control, I guess, about 60% of the emissions in Canada. How would that change then? What, What does that closer relationship look like? Well, I think it looks like, first of all, recognition of cities in the nationally determined contributions. Now, that's the NDCs, they're called. That's Canada's commitment to climate change. And we're not even recognized. The cities aren't even recognized in the NDC. So that's number one. The second is real recognition for the work that cities are playing in leading on climate change. Now, cities are often the most vulnerable when it comes to climate impacts. I'm based in British Columbia the wildfires that we've had to deal with, rising sea levels in Vancouver, we're the 10th most vulnerable city in the world on rising sea levels. So cities are at the front edge of dealing with this crisis. And yet they don't have the tools, they don't have the capacity to really take action and deal with the issues that, that they have to confront. Can we get into this question of nationally determined contributions or NDCs, as you already brought up, um, which are the climate targets mandated by the Paris Agreement? What do you mean when you say you want cities recognized in that? Well, they're not. In a sense, one might argue, well, it's just a briefing document for government. But it's Canada's commitment to the global arena to say, hey, we're going to come and we are going to make this kind of commitment. Nowhere in there is recognized that cities are part of that commitment. And often what you'll see is Canada and the federal government taking credit for reductions in greenhouse gas emissions anytime they take credit. It's often the city's actions that have led to those reductions. So that part of it is recognizing it. It's also trying to ensure that federal actions do not undermine what cities are doing. 
So those are some of the things that they're, they want some continuity. They want a real conversation with the federal government and really seeing them as important actors and partners in this process. So uh, tell me, give me some idea of what the relationship would look like that's different from today. Um, would it be having a minister of municipal affairs in, in the federal government dealing directly with cities? How would it change? Well, I think that there's many. Certainly having a minister uh, is important, but you also need to embed cities through each of the ministries, and especially those that are working, Natural Resources Canada, Environment and Climate Change, um, Heritage, Social Development. All of those need city lenses in their work, and some of them do, and some of them uh, to a much lesser extent. So we want to see formalized relationships. We want to see, for example, at COP, that cities have a very clear role to play at the table in the negotiations. So our cities included. Um, the other thing, and I think this is the more important piece, is that you know cities are trying to stretch their property taxes into everything. Because that's the, the taxing authority they have. That's the financial mechanism they have to pay for what's going on. Property taxes are so overstretched. So what we need to see happen is new f- municipal financing capacity. Now, we are talking about cities, but there are still a lot of people in this country who don't live in cities who are feeling the impacts of climate change. How do you see smaller towns and more remote communities fitting into this? Small communities do not have the capacity to develop this kind of sophisticated climate action plans that bigger municipalities do. But every municipality is part of a broader metropolitan region. And those communities have a close association. So really important that when we think about the actions that are happening at that metro level, that we're thinking about those smaller communities that have a relationship. And I think one of the really interesting things that have happened in Canada is the extent to which Indigenous communities have really looked at themselves as potential sources of power, renewable power, uh, for uh, the broader urban appetite for power. And so we're starting to see new and innovative programming coming out, controlled by Indigenous communities and developed by Indigenous communities. So that's an example of where if you had a climate lens that you understood that broader urban rural relationship, you could really create multiple benefits of of programs and and funding available to cities and to rural communities. And we know municipalities are on the front lines of a suite of other issues, homelessness, transportation needs. Many are dealing with an opioid crisis. Uh, I'm wondering if there's a danger that cities will see climate responsibilities downloaded to them when they already have so much to cope with. Well, it's so interesting because this is the crux of the matter for so many mayors and councils is they're dealing with this complexity of issues and they can't be siloed. They really can't because the people who are most vulnerable to climate change are those people living on the streets. You have to look at climate and you have to deal with equity, affordability at the same time that you're dealing with climate. This is a time where we cannot think in the silos we've traditionally thought, and we have to look at an integrated planning for cities. Shauna Sylvester, we know you're off to Glasgow for COP26. Um, Perhaps we'll talk to you again. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. Now, one measure of the success of cities at the summit in Glasgow was ensuring that cities were specifically included in the preamble to the final agreement. 
For advocates, it set the stage for a more unified, coordinated campaign, ensuring cities have the funds they need to both cut emissions and to adapt to climate change. David Miller says there are examples of cities that are already doing the work, and the former mayor of Toronto thinks all urban centres have the opportunity to do the same. He wrote the book Solved, How the World's Great Cities Are Fixing the Climate Crisis. Currently, David Miller is the Managing Director of International Diplomacy at C40 Cities, and that's a global alliance of city mayors. Hello to you. Hello. Why do you think cities can play a significant role in fighting climate change? Well, I think, first of all, it's because of the urgency of climate change. Um, Science is very clear. We need to roughly have global emissions by 2030 if we're to have any chance whatsoever of avoiding the worst effects of climate change. And that means we need to take things that are working now somewhere and do them everywhere. And the best examples of what's working somewhere to lower greenhouse gas emissions and improve people's lives are globally in cities. Correct me if I'm mistaken, cities are the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions globally? Yes, that's correct. Uh, Studies show that about 70% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions come from cities or from the activities needed to sustain them, like a power plant. Added to that, though, is that over the about the last decade or so, the world has predominantly become urban. And the majority of economic activities are in cities as well. So the people are in cities, our economies in cities, and our greenhouse gas emissions in cities. That means that where there are solutions, there is a huge opportunity to address climate change. Now, as the former mayor of Toronto, you obviously know about the challenges that cities face, but you argue that they still have a lot of power despite their financial or jurisdictional constraints. Tell me how that works. Cities have accepted the science and said that we're going to try to build a 1.5 degree world. And the first thing that cities have, particularly through the office of the mayor, is a tremendous bully pulpit to uh, fight for action on climate change. The second thing they have is a lot of powers that actually are really relevant to climate change. They oversee transportation, the quality of buildings, where new buildings go, how buildings are built. They oversee waste management. Often they have influence on or control over electricity. And really those are the four areas we're talking about. How we generate our electricity, how we heat and cool our buildings, our transportation systems, and our waste management. And in each of those, there are really significant advances that cities have made globally, whether they have direct regulatory authority or not, to lower greenhouse gas emissions, build better cities, and really move the world along the right trajectory. What cities do you think are currently leading the way in the different sectors that you mentioned? I can give some really good examples. In buildings, for example, we need to build new buildings much better. And today we can build buildings that are basically zero emission. And Vancouver has a building code that's going to require that by 2030. So they probably have the world's leading building code. And they're using it also to create a whole range of local industries that supply the parts for this new kind of way of building buildings, uh, like mass timber, like different kinds of windows and and so forth. New York City 
has mandated that existing commercial buildings over a certain size, which are the ones that emit the most greenhouse gases, actually have to cut in half by 2030 the greenhouse gas emissions. And in a city like New York, buildings are the biggest sector of greenhouse gas emissions. And there are examples in other sectors as well. Um, you know, in transportation, Shenzhen, China is incredible. Its taxi fleet and its bus fleet are entirely electric, and they've used the fact of public transport going electric to create a whole new industry, the world's leading electric bus manufacturers in Shenzhen, China. You know, in Canada, we're starting to look at electric buses. China's way ahead of us. They're, they're already there. And if you combine that with clean electricity grids, which we have in British Columbia, Ontario and Quebec, uh, in Canada, you have huge advances in lowering greenhouse gas emissions. Now, I understand that you think that the city you used to uh, lead uh, has done well across the board on reducing emissions. Well, it's not just I think. The, the <laughs> facts show that. You know, the climate plan that we brought in while I was in office, which was called Changes in the Air in 2007, incorporated a whole variety of actions, building new public transports, decarbonizing buildings in the public and private sector, uh, working in neighborhoods and communities with people on smaller projects and, and funding them, um, all sorts of, of really leading things. And what, I think what Toronto shows is the fact we had a plan and the follow-up plan was done 10 years uh, later uh, under the current mayor, and the research for that plan done by independent consultants showed that the city of Toronto's greenhouse gases emitted by the geographic area, not just by the city operations, are 33% below what they were in 1990. And that comes from the city plan and from the provincial government closing the Lakeview coal-fired plant, which uh, supplied electricity to Toronto, particularly for air conditioning. So the Toronto experience shows that if you address these areas meaningfully, you have a good plan, the mayor takes leadership, you get business and civil society on board, you can make deep and meaningful cuts in carbon emissions. But you are heading, I understand it, to COP26 in Glasgow at the end of the month. What's the message that you hope people will hear about how cities can fight climate change? I think what people are going to first hear from Glasgow is worry about national governments not doing what they committed to in Paris six years ago, which is increasing their ambition. And I hope what they hear from cities, because our mayors will be in Glasgow saying it, is that there are actions being taken today that if we do more of them quickly in your city, despite what national governments aren't doing, we can actually get the world on the path it needs to be. There is real action. There's a reason for hope. But we need to work with our city governments and our mayors to help make those actions happen really quickly. David Miller, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. My conversation with David Miller originally aired in October, just ahead of COP26. That is it for us this week. And it's also it for our senior producer, Manisha Janakaram. She's been with What on Earth from the start, just over two years ago. Manisha has been steadfast, a natural leader, and passionate about what we do here every week. But she also makes space for fun and laughter, and that is important when you're tackling a subject as serious as climate change. Now she's off to Toronto for a new challenge running the local CBC radio programs there. 
and our loss is certainly their gain. Manisha, we'll miss you very much, and thank you for all you've done with the program. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. We'll be back next week. How's that? That sounded like the keeper, right? Yeah, okay. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.